0: Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes, and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory, and even characterizations, all came together over time and were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans after the 60s series ended. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who is writing it, and even who is watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a merry universe. Or,
1: to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe.
0: In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek, and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the holder. As we've revealed several times over the course of this podcast, Star Trek is a TV show. Specifically, it's a TV show produced in the 1960s, and whilst Trek has lasted over 50 years since then, much that defines it was locked in in this period. And that applies not only to Trek itself, but to the many shows that followed in its footsteps, and even large segments of the medium as a whole. Besides being the vanguard of serious science fiction on TV, introducing any number of ideas and approaches to genre storytelling, Trek also played a huge role in shaping how the medium would interpret sci-fi for decades to come. In many ways, the tropes and formulae of Star Trek are the bones of storytelling itself. It's also had to use the medium creatively due to the low budgets and the usual crunch of television production in ways that big-budget sci-fi movies would never dream of doing. TV's changed a lot since Star Trek first hit the air, and Trek's changed with it. But in some ways, it's more the same than ever.
1: Good afternoon, I'm Douglas McDonald Norman, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host...
0: Adam Prosser. Hello.
1: Today we're going to be talking about Star Trek as a TV show, how the way in which the show is produced, its staging, its visual styles, its music styles, its interaction with the basic conditions of television production, affect what we see on screen, how we engage with it as viewers, and the contours of the Star Trek universe itself. One of the key examples of this is how Star Trek gets updated in every single revamp of Star Trek. The original series is quintessentially a product of the 1960s. Its aesthetics, its uniforms, what the Enterprise looks like outside and inside, are deeply shaped by the aesthetics, styles, and technology of the era. Every time we've seen that Starship in the years since, it has been affected in ways subtle and grandiose by the ways in which our expectations, our technology, and our styles have changed. Now, this can sometimes create problems. For example, the version of the original USS Enterprise that we've seen on the most recent series, most notably Star Trek Discovery, evokes that of the 1960s, but in its interiors, in its technology, in what the ship can do, is clearly much more of this current era. It is an attempt to evoke what the previous ship looked like without precisely reconstructing it. And so this raises one of the key questions that Star Trek consistently has to face when it depicts the past of the show itself. When it depicts a starship from our future, but from Star Trek's past, what's more important? Is it important that it look like a ship that's 250 years from now, or a ship from a hundred years before Star Trek: The Next Generation? Does the show need to be true to our universe or its own? Adam, what do you think? <laughs>
0: yeah, I think that's absolutely fascinating. I I've called this in the past the Trek filter, uh, and what I find most fascinating about it is that everyone just goes along with it. You you almost I mean, admittedly, I'm not scouring you know the corners of the internet and fandom and everything. Uh, But it's extremely rare from what I've seen to see someone complaining, like, what, why did they make the, like, nobody, I don't think anyone saw Discovery and went, why didn't they make the Enterprise look exactly the way it did in 1966? Like, why does it have, you know, panels and why, why, why has it got, you know, uh cool lighting and 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 so on and so forth. Now they will I know there'll there'll be arguments about for instance the use of holograms on Star Trek Discovery, which is high tech even by next generation standards for a show that's taking place about 110 years before uh <laughs> the next generation. Um but that's a specific point of technological progress um which is different from just saying how the visuals are presented. Um things like the fact that the klingons the, i think the earliest example of this is the movie upgrade when we got um uh we went from a tv show to 10 years later a big budget movie and you had things like the klingons getting uh the famous forehead ridges which they hadn't had before uh and again people just I mean I, there may have been massive arguments and i know that uh, gene runbury had the joke that uh, I think it's the, the the ones we see in the movies are Northern Klingons and the ones we see on the show are Southern Klingons uh, as, as sort of a jokey way to hand wave it. Um, and of course, famously, <laughs> we did eventually get an explanation for that on Enterprise after, but the, the only reason we got that uh, on Enterprise is because the issue was explicitly raised on Deep Space Nine, in which they traveled into the past and interacted with uh, the, epi- the events of the episode "The Trouble with Tribbles." Um, so, if they hadn't done that, in in many ways, that wouldn't have been an issue at all. Nobody would have actually <laughs> had to to feel to reconcile those two versions of the Klingons or those two versions of Star Trek. I think everyone would have just rolled with it, as it were. And again, when you get to Enterprise and you get to the numerous prequels at this point, the Star Trek is done. Uh, people are just fine with it. They don't care that the visuals have been revamped for a modern uh, a modern audience. It, it doesn't matter at all. It's just okay. What we saw before was, you know, the best we could do with the budget and technological limitations of 1966 and then 1978 and now it's 1987 and now it's 2020 and this is just how it looks now like you know when you have this long-lasting this long-lasting uh franchise people are just willing to roll with it which is also uh it's interesting that another big one which is um well uh, two other big franchises are Star, Star Wars and Doctor Who. Doctor Who has built into its DNA the idea that it can constantly be upgrading itself and, and revamping the way it looks. So that's And it doesn't have a lot of sets and things that can't be revamped anyway. Uh, Star Wars had this huge budget right from the start, and it looked pretty, even by modern, era, modern standards, nobody looks back at the original Star Wars and goes, well, that's just completely cheesy and ridiculous, because it looked decent uh, even by our standards, even if we can tell that you know, banthas are an elephant in a in a blanket or whatever. Um, but uh, Star Trek has had to deal with that because of the very low budget and the elaborate sets and the, the the fairly elaborate thing that's been trying to do. So I just found it really interesting that it goes ahead with that and full steam ahead. And and even the Klingon thing, people have sort of stopped thinking about. It's just gone. We've just gone ahead the way it was. And now there's a new look for the Klingons on the Abrams era and the, the Kelvin timeline, the Discovery and so on. I think it's really interesting
1: that you bring up Star Wars because that is the one that I think has aroused the most fan discontent amongst purists on Star Trek. People looking at the new Star Wars movies and saying, well, they're able to evoke what the millennium falcon looked like they're able to evoke the imperial aesthetic from 50 years ago why can't we do the same and there's two immediate answers to that the first is it's a movie it's got lots of money star trek is and always has been a tv show it's never had much money it doesn't have unlimited resources now they but the second thing obviously is that star wars is not our future it takes place a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And furthermore, it's not—it's very rarely depicting the absolute epitome of technological progress. It's depicting junkyards. It's depicting scavengers and smugglers and mercenaries. The Star Wars ships can look beaten up because they're not actually intended to, to represent where we're going or the absolute cutting edge of where we're going whereas Star Trek usually is. And I think that it is more important in terms of accessibility to a new viewer that the Enterprise consistently look like a future vision of where we're headed now than that it is an absolutely faithful attempt to recreate the 1960s. Now, the one time that Star Trek has absolutely faithfully attempted to recreate the 1960s is, of course, in Deep Space Nine with Trials and Tribulations. And I just want to bring that up for a moment. Trials and Tribulations is, on a literal level, is about the crew visiting the 1960s. But on every level that it counts, it's not about the crew visiting the 1960s. It's about the crew visiting the TOS episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. It is a crossover between TV shows. It is not meant to be about (laughs) literally representing the characters traveling a hundred years back in time, it is is not intended to be taken seriously. It is Star Trek talking about itself. And so everything in that episode doesn't represent an absolute ideal of the show taking itself 100% seriously and representing what it should always be like. It is fundamentally an exercise in nostalgia and is not actually a model of what the show should be doing all the time. And this is summed up by the Klingon forehead thing. And I'm just going to bring this up once and never again. (laughs) Every minute that Star Trek has spent talking about or trying to address the issue of Klingon foreheads has been utterly wasted. We as an audience know... Why the Klingons on the original series didn't have bumpy foreheads, because they hadn't thought of it yet. Devoting two whole episodes of Enterprise, a show that doesn't have that many episodes to begin with, to unraveling this deeply vexed question, is the show absolutely dying on its feet? We don't need an in-universe explanation for this. It's something which is capable of being a joke from trials and tribulations, and they're never being addressed again, because there is no solution that is in any way dramatically satisfying and doesn't ultimately raise way more problems than it ultimately <laughs> solves. For example, Discovery now has to reckon with why the Klingons ten years before the original series look completely different again, and how they're going to explain the Klingons looking different in ten years' time and everyone forgetting what they used to look like before. And indeed, everyone forgetting the fact that Klingons have gone through these massive fluctuations in their appearance over the course of 200 years. Now, this is, of course, all deeply silly. But that's because it's a silly problem that's capable of being written off by, for example, Worf looking to camera and saying, don't worry about it, rather than (laughs) actually having to be solved within the show's universe itself. And so going back to your idea of the Trek filter... The Trek filter really only works if the show doesn't mention it. Every attempt the show makes to try to explain the Trek filter or to justify itself or to draw attention to the problem reduces its effectiveness and ultimately forces us brings us out of the reality of what's happening on screen. Star Trek should spend as little time as possible obsessing over the conditions under which Star Trek is produced and should just ultimately get on with it.
0: Continue. Yeah, one one hundred percent. It's you're you're right. I I don't mind that uh, that Enterprise two partner as much as you apparently do. Uh, but I do find it amusing that we've essentially thrown that aside and forgotten about it. You know, Discovery just goes, yeah, this is how Klingons look. Everyone's just going, yeah, this is how Klingons look. There's been no attempt whatsoever to 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 try and bring that up again. Uh, and I think that's that's the smart move. Uh, I think we can just sort of pretend that that little bit of continuity is not actually out there because star trek of course is always a continuity obsessed program so it's inevitable that that something like that i'm actually impressed that there haven't been more attempts to do things like that um that there haven't been more attempts to you know explain I don't know, the way the Romulans look different, and, well, they I, I mean, technically, they in Picard, they did end up using the exact explanation that we were just talking about. They said that Northern Romulans look a certain way and, and Southern Romulans look a certain way, which was probably a, a, a joke about what Roddenberry had said ba- uh, back at that point. Um, but it is, it is just fascinating that this continuity-obsessed show, the, the show that's probably more obsessed with continuity than almost any other franchise, except maybe superhero comics um, has been willing to just roll with it so much I just I I find that absolutely fascinating and amazing that we just keep reinventing Star Trek in our heads and we almost accept that every new version of Star Trek is like a reboot as much as it is a sequel that it just it's reconceptualizing Star Trek and and as you say that's what it has to do because it's about the future it's about where we're going so you have to sort of re re re-assimilate so to speak all the knowledge that you had before and 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 bring it back into um whatever new thing you're doing with star trek uh i you know i think it's significant that roddenberry didn't want um didn't want to use a lot of other old uh, alien races and and uh, elements of star trek when he created next generation which may have been a little frustrating it was always uh, some i sometimes had one or two moments and you know in the the burman era where i kind of went ah oh, wish they'd you know bring in the you know the orions or something but in the long term, that was probably a smart move, and it ended up, you know, adding to the uh adding to the mythology of Trek and helping it uh, continue to expand instead of shrinking down and and obsessing over itself the way that some franchises do.
1: Honestly, I didn't want to say much more than absolutely, just because I want to stake my stake my flag in the ground as firmly as I can at that point. It is not healthy for Star Trek to be about the same six planets. Doing the same things again and again and again, I I, I I completely agree. Sometimes it's good to see Orion pirates. We've seen those before. Those remind us of when uh, those remind us of other episodes and place it within a coherent universe. But if every pirate is an Orion, if every scientist is a Vulcan, if every fascist is a Cardassian, it makes the Star Trek universe so small. And I think, I think Roddenberry was exactly right to suggest that. Star Trek ultimately needs to create its own mythology, that Star Trek ultimately needs to be moving outwards and creating new concepts that can in time mean as much to us as the old ones did. If Star Trek's purely about reheating the same meal again and again and again, with no desire to cook anything new or add anything new to the tapestry, then Star Trek's going to die. And I think that, um, that... Style, so, so stylistic boldness and willingness to experiment with new races, new modes of makeup, new ways of depicting cultures, new types of uh, new types of television storytelling is inextricably linked to the health of the franchise as a whole.
0: So that uh, sort of touches on, well, it, it, it's a segue at least to, to something else. So, again, uh, to emphasize here, Star Trek is a television show and. Um, the other a lot of other sci-fi that's out there including of course Star Wars um, is not a television show we as we mentioned it's a, it's a movie um beyond simply the fact that they have all this money to make a movie and that the product they usually have a lot more production time all those other factors come into play um, but the nature of the medium itself uh, has a really interesting effect on um on the stories you're telling and on Star Trek and on the franchise. Um, my friend Andrew Hickey um, has made, uh, He's he's been on my other podcast, we just had him on for the Doctor Who episode. And again, you know, in some ways, to oversimplify, Doctor Who is to Great Britain as Star Trek is to North America. Um, and it, again, that is also a show that is a TV show that is very, very much a TV show, and that is a big part of its identity. Um, you know, there was talk at one point of making a Doctor Who movie, and that I mean, there has been a Doctor Who movie, but you know what I mean. <laughs> in in the context that we now have it, it, it that does change the nature of it in a lot of subtle ways that a lot of people wouldn't acknowledge. And Star Trek, of course, has been a movie as well. It has been movies as well as TV shows. Um, but I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of people sort of come around to issues with the Star Trek movies because, in many ways, that's not Star Trek's native environment. Mm. Um, it's meant to be a tv show more than anything else which is to say a serialized story in which there's a self-contained plot every week usually involving going to another planet encountering another race or encountering some issue or some moral conundrum or some uh alien idea that has to be processed and dealt with and then moving on to the next one the next week that is the ideal format for star trek um for a number of different reasons. When you do it as a movie, which is not to say I haven't enjoyed a lot of the Star Trek movies, but you are dealing with a plot of the movie, but you're not exploring. The fact that they are going to be at a new planet next week subtly affects the whole story. And that it's not necessarily life or death for the Enterprise that particular week. Um, it's It's just a big issue they have to resolve this particular week that shapes the kind of stories that they're going to tell and the way it tells the stories um i, I anyway my friend andrew hickey what what he's one thing he'd mentioned is that and this is particularly true of british television um we tend to think of television as just small short uh commercial interrupted movies but that's not necessarily the other media that's affecting television um there's at least two other media that certainly had a huge in the early days of television had a huge impact, and those are radio and theater. And that uh, Andrew's point was that in uh, in Britain, um, TV was often seen at least for the first few decades, especially uh, more in keeping with the theatrical tradition than with the the movie tradition. And that as a, like that a lot of this stuff was broadcast live. And never, and, and famously, a lot of Doctor Who was lost because they didn't bother to keep the tapes, because it was like, it had been broadcast, it had been done, it was done, we don't need it anymore. Whereas, in North America, arguably, they had a bit more of a movie sensibility to it. Um, it was literally, you know, Star Trek was literally shot on film sets using film costumes at a film studio, or I think a film studio, I've never been totally clear on whether they did uh, film shoots at Desilu or not, uh, but... um Certainly it was in that general vicinity, it was in Hollywood. Um, and But nevertheless, Star Trek does have aspects about it that could be seen as theatrical, and TV has always had that, because you don't have, even when you have a huge budget and you have lots of production time, which you usually don't in TV, but even if you did, uh, the nature of the serialized story and the way it unfolds is still going to emphasize Character relationships, dialogue, ideas, even if TV fights that a lot. That's the natural form of television to have two actors in a room sitting down and talking to each other more than it is blowing up the universe every week. Blowing up the universe is what happens at the climax of the episode. Up till then, it's people sitting and talking about, oh no, the universe is going to explode. <laughs> that, that's how it works, essentially. Yeah. I, I'm really,
1: really glad that you got to those theatrical roots of Star Trek, because I think that's key to what the show is. William Shatner, of course, before he became Captain Kirk, was a, very, was a remarkably accomplished in a short time Shakespearean and classical actor from Canada. Um, Avery Brooks is, of course, a tenured professor of theatre practice at Rutgers in New Jersey. Um, Renee Aubergonnois and Armin Schimmerman have had very distinguished careers on stage. And I think Armin Schimmerman is currently a professor teaching Shakespeare at a university in California.
0: And of oh, course, really? Andrew.
1: Yeah, he. And Armin Schimmerman. In 2017, Armin Schimmerman was appointed as a professor of Shakespeare at the University of Southern California. Cool. Yeah. Um, and of course, Andrew Robinson taught acting for many, many years at a university in Southern California as well. Let's find out which one. Andrew Robinson created the MFA Professional Actor Training Program at the University of Southern California. So some of Star Trek's greatest actors come from a theatrical and indeed from an academic theatrical tradition. And as you... I do find it funny that you
0: you didn't mention Patrick Stewart and all that. (laughs) But yes, he's also Mr. (laughs) Oh, oh, all right. Sorry. Yeah, no, never mind.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And of course, there's the actor who's so so famous for his Shakespearean and classical roles that he's received a knighthood for for it. Patrick someone. (laughs) (laughs) Um... But yes, absolutely. Um, we'll, we'll edit that together into something funny. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Star Trek owes a lot to a theatrical tradition. And I think that's really, really interesting in that you can see the link between theatre relying to such a degree upon the actor having to... upon the act of placing themselves in a particular imaginative mode. Do I see a d- dagger here before me? And placing themselves into the somewhat heightened reality of Star Trek, of being forced to place themselves not within a contemporary environment, but to evoke a particular science fiction environment through gesture, through speech, through movement. That, uh, the element to which it's not depicted towards precise literal representations of contemporary states or emotions. But of course, as you've said, it is also because Star Trek is, to a very large extent, about talking. Dramatic talking, dramatic arguing, dramatic problem solving, and we'll get back to that a bit later in the episode, because that's something really interesting you've brought up that deserves to be addressed at length. But some of Star Trek's finest hours are the ones where it leans into the fact that it's not intended to precisely and literally represent a realistic alien planet, where it leans into the weirdness, as it were. In Spectre of the Gun, in the original series, where the entire planet is made up of half-finished stage sets, which ultimately, I think, create a far more evocative and effective environment than if it had tried to build a town in the Old West with its limited budget. Or The Empath, where it depicts imprisonment on an alien planet through highly lit sound stages, rather than attempting to build a prison. Star Trek is leaning into this theatrical tradition by using these small details to evoke something far weirder and stranger beyond what we can imagine, rather than leaning into a film tradition of absolute and literal representation. If there's one thing I, I, I do miss about contemporary Star Trek, and which I think Doctor Who does really well, is that I think contemporary Doctor Who has been far more willing to lean into a diversity of storytelling modes and a diversity of different things Doctor Who can be, rather than telling the same story with the same basic beats every week. New Doctor Who has done stories in which we only see the main characters for a few minutes, or in which it is ultimately a locked room mystery. It's evoked the bottle episodes of old Star Trek a lot more effectively than anything we've seen on new Star Trek by showing that there's a lot of different ways to tell a science fiction story. If anything, I'd like Star Trek to be a lot bolder in what types of stories it chooses to tell, how it tells them, and the dramatic tools it uses to represent them because new star trek i think is much more in that movie mold of the precise and literal adaptation of what an alien planet could look like rather than merely suggesting it through gesture and detail
0: yeah yeah it's, it's you know it it never stops uh as late as um sort of the end of deep space 9 uh they're still going with the idea that if you're in a cave on a planet uh in um in uh in the Next generation episode, the final mission, uh, they crash land on a planet, uh, which admittedly seems to have had some form of intelligence interfering with it at some point. But you know, it's it's they go to the cave, and the the Star Trek cave is is always very much a star a, a stage set. You're never mistaken. There's often steps, even if it's supposed to be a natural formation. Okay, admittedly, there's usually some rationalization for someone's been there and they've made it into a hideout or whatever. Um, But that's like, whenever, as soon as somebody goes into a cave uh, on Star Trek, it's always very obviously a stage set, to the point where you don't see it anymore. If you're a longtime Star Trek viewer, you're just, yeah, they're in the cave. (laughs) This is what it looks like. That's fine. They're in the Star Trek cave, just as there's the Star Trek planet, which you saw in the uh, the original series, and then the first couple of years of Next Generation, but they stopped doing it fairly quickly on Next Generation, where it would very obviously be a stage set with a sort of a forbidden planet uh, backdrop to it, and and a red sky, and, you know, the, the, what we would think of as the classic Star Trek planet. Very, very much a stage. Um, there's also just, but going back to what you said, though... Um, the way that, yeah, that was one of my favorite things about Star Trek, uh, especially in the Berman era, where it would do all kinds of crazy modes of storytelling. It would it set the stage for everything that came after uh, in, in genre storytelling uh, in terms of just really shaking up the audience week to week and saying, well, this week we're actually going to do something crazy. We're going to open by blowing up the Enterprise. And then what the hell? And then the whole episode is going to be Groundhog Day. I I think something like eight months before the actual movie, Groundhog Day, came out. Uh, the episode, um, which was called... Uh, I wrote it down. Cause and effect. effect. Uh, yes. Uh, it, that, that, the, the fact that they had an idea... Like, let's do an episode where, between every commercial break, it's going to be the same events repeating themselves over and over again, except the characters are becoming slowly more and more aware of what they're doing. Uh, that's a really bold thing to do in 1991 or 92 whatever it was like that that's crazy thing to do on tv that's an incredibly experimental idea it's really interesting to me that they would do something like that um there's uh uh, actually the episode um uh frame of mind uh with uh which is uh, the one where Riker uh is in a play but then he's also suddenly thinking he's in an alien insane asylum and everything about being on the Enterprise is just a delusion, and they're trying to convince him. And, I mean, again, going back to the theatrical thing, he is literally in a play, and they keep using breaking, very literally in the theatrical sense, breaking the fourth wall, because Riker will be on a set, and then one, one moment he'll be on a set, and then the next moment he'll be on, he'll be in the actual space that's supposed to be occupied, that the, sta- the set is supposed to represent. Or is an echo of it at least and it it really effectively blurs the lines between reality and and fantasy and it really highlights the fact that this is how theater works <laughs> you know you're supposed to be imagining a full set even though you're never going to be hundred percent uh convinced of it i find it interesting that well into boy i think even into the 2000s um sitcoms never quite gave up the fact that they were uh stage plays um, everything else on television moved into more closer and closer to being little movies, but um, there were still TV shows with laugh tracks and three cameras and no fourth wall, and as if it was being watched by a theatrical audience. And again, we were just used to it; we accepted it. Now, I I don't think you see sitcoms like that anymore. I could be wrong; there might still be one or two of them out there, but. We're so used to the i that we we used to be so used to the idea we wouldn't even blink, even though that wasn't in any way realistic. Then we started getting one-camera sitcoms, and they started being the same level of verisimilitude as everything else. But um, but that just shows you that whole theatrical route that's there, and and uh, Star Trek, and then in 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 maybe less uh, dramatically um, experimental sense, but there are a lot of Star Trek episodes that are just uh, two act two-person play, well not two-person plays, but that are that are you know long arguments uh between two characters and duet is probably the pinnacle of that on deep space 9 uh between Kira and the uh, the Cardassian guy they um they you know you could do that as a stage play with no problem whatsoever it's it's literally just most 90% of it is her talking to him while he's in the brig and and having a big argument about it um, a lot of star trek episodes even and then Near literally near the tail end of Deep Space Nine, they do waltz, which is obviously meant to be kind of a callback to duet, even in the name. Um, and that is kind of a two-person play as well, uh, with Cisco and Ducat maroon on a planet having this argument. Uh, that's a format Star Trek likes to do. And again, it's it's got that theatrical tradition going on very well. But yeah, it, it, it's always fascinating to me that Star Trek, there's multiple different little Star Trek things. And you're right, Discovery kind of threw that by the wayside because they're pursuing the modern st- serialized streaming model where, uh, it, although they're not too bad about having it be standalone stories week to week, but there's a larger story unfolding and that, that sort of ends up taking precedence. I will note though, uh, the last couple episodes of discovery that just aired. So literally the most recent Star Trek thing as of this recording uh, did have them trapped in a holographic universe. And the holodeck is another very stagy uh, idea that exists in Star Trek Um they um, they existed in a unreal uh, artificial space, a holographic space, and that had a lot of stagey elements to it as well. That, in many ways, was an attempt to recreate a non-real mind space, and you weren't supposed to accept it as real anyway. Uh, and it had some of those same stage signifiers that I've been talking about. So even now, Star Trek has not completely abandoned that that element.
1: I, I'm really glad you brought up the last few episodes of Discovery because I think they're actually everything in the holographic space really epitomizes a lot of the suspension of disbelief that we have to use when we're watching star trek so doug jones shows up without makeup doug jones of (laughs) course given his enormous flexibility is star trek's greatest special effect of all doug jones shows up without makeup and we're told the holographic environment has made you look human and we're not meant to be asking how exactly is a holographic environment making an eight foot alien look like a six foot human actor because we know the answer it's Doug Jones it's always Doug Jones it's just that sometimes he's wearing makeup and sometimes he's not and the fact that we're just presented with this conceit oh you look human now and we're not actually expected to question well what does this mean is a really really good example of how Star Trek should be working he looks human because it is an interesting way of depicting the strangeness of the space and because Doug Jones, as Discovery's MVP, has well and truly earned himself a few hours out of Styrofoam. We just need to go with it. (laughs) Um, I think it's really interesting that you bring up Disco as an example of this and as an example of Star Trek conforming to modern storytelling methods. Obviously, Disco is a show that relies heavily on serialisation. The extent to which it rests on serialisation, as you've noted, can wax and wane from episode to episode. Some episodes, like Magic to Make the Sanest Man to Go, go mad from the first season of Discovery, are more or less standalone, but draw upon previous episodes. Other episodes really have almost no independent content and are simply a collection of the next things that happened from the last episode. In doing so, it's following some of the footsteps that Deep Space Nine set down as really the pioneer of serialised telling on Star Trek. But it could also be said, as you've noted, that rather than necessarily picking up where Deep Space Nine left off and experimenting with some of the techniques, it's conforming to modern television story techniques. This is how we consume TV now, this is how TV stories are told. And I think there's something to be mourned in the loss of a unique Star Trek tradition in that regard. So part of Star Trek's value is that it's not just like everything else on TV. That it does draw on its own independent sources. That it does owe more to theatre than most American TV shows do. That you could even say it's more British than most American TV shows. For my, to my lights, the best episode of Star Trek of all time is The Visitor in Deep Space Nine Season 4, which is a a story told by an old man to a young woman who's come to visit him for inspiration. It's not like an ordinary Star Trek story in terms of that framing device. It's not like an ordinary Star Trek story in terms of its structure, in terms of how it uses time, in terms of its uh, reliance upon narration, in terms of its interest in the internal state of one character explicitly told to us as the audience. On one hand, it's a very, very traditional story. You could probably make a stage play of The Visitor without an enormous amount of variation of what's happening. But in terms of a TV episode, it's quite radical in terms of its willingness to depart from the beats a Star Trek story normally follows. I generally quite like Discovery, but I really, really wish it was capable of breaking free of the constraints of what a Star Trek Discovery story looks like, to be able to tell stories in that mould. Because I think, ultimately, what makes The Visitor so powerful is that we have this investment in these characters, but that it is able to mould how the story is told to best evoke what happens it, uh, to, to, to best evoke those emotions in us it's not wedded to star trek stories can only do this and can only be told in this linear way which ultimately brings us to what i think is one of the key stories of the Berman era the gradual shift away from boldness in the in visual style boldness in music boldness in storytelling that we see in the original series towards something more of a template i do think that especially across the course of voyager and enterprise with some notable exceptions star trek stories start sounding very much the same start looking very much the same and become ultimately your 42 minute dose of star trek in the same way as you saw the week before and that is a big story of the decline and fall of the show in the years leading up to two thousand and five. Do you agree, Adam, that we see a greater uniformity set in across Star Trek in the late nineties and early two thousands?
0: Yeah, yeah. the the um, the That that is one of the reasons I'm not an enormous fan of uh, Voyager, uh, and it's my least favorite Star Trek show. Um, uh, just because it 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 really did feel like they had this really Great premise. They had this exciting premise that could have done all kinds of wild new things with. Uh, and they literally dragged it back to be as much like Next Generation as possible because, uh, as you've said in a previous episode, it had to be the bedrock of a new uh, TV network and it had all these commercial constraints pulling on it. And that clearly uh, weakened them pretty heavily in terms of the kinds of uh, original kind of chances they were willing to take. Um, and to the point where even some of the best Voyager episodes are often somewhat like earlier Deep Space Nine and Next Generation episodes, and even original series episodes. Um, oh, can I just interject there? Yeah, sure.
1: I just Look, um, I, 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 I will give Voyager credit that everything it did with Captain Proton, I think is genius from a stylistic <laughs> point of view. And I think it does yes. evoke like a willingness to be experimental with television storytelling and with using the conceits of the medium, and in not expecting us as an not expecting the audience to ask many questions about how is all this working, but clearly telling us these are characters who are in a nineteen fifties uh, pulp science fiction. Look, I have a lot of fond, a lot of enormously fond memories of Voyager. And a lot of those fond memories are about the episode Bride of Chaotica. That yeah. does demonstrate, as you said, a lot of the promise that when, Star- when Voyager was willing to be experimental and was willing to do bold, weird new modes of how you could use the TV format, it often works really well. Back to you.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're right. I think uh, the Captain Proton episodes are probably the last moment where. Uh, Star Trek was willing to sort of blow up the medium it was in to that degree. Uh, I'm trying to think if there were any moments like that on Enterprise, and I don't think there were. So, I mean, fair point. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it's, uh, and, and of course, Enterprise did a lot, almost by design. It was doing a lot to say, you know, oh, yeah, here are the greatest hits, but reconfigured somewhat, uh, mm. first with the Berman era, and then actually more like the uh, the original series. Uh, era in some ways, but uh, at least like Enterprise, <laughs> where what Next Generation and Deep Space Nine did out of boldness, uh, Enterprise sometimes did out of desperation, uh, as we discussed in the last episode, because it it was so awkward and trying to keep pace with what had happened post nine eleven and and where Star and and the changing television landscape and everything else, it did sort of hit a point where it was like desperately casting around for crazy new things to do um including you know really getting into serialization even though D. space nine had already done serialization uh it did start to get uh pretty heavily serialized in the last two seasons uh you know it 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 started calling back to the original star trek more it started uh trying to come up with with weird uh weird ways to uh, express uh, its ideas that maybe weren't that that were a bit of a break from what we'd seen the last decade um but it was clearly also doing that at a time of like, oh my god, it's not work. the formula's not working anymore. As opposed to d 9 was like, screw the formula, you know, like, that's, and Next Generation, of course. Um, Next Generation, of course, was soon enough that it didn't have as much of a formula. Uh, yes, Star Trek, but it-, it was still finding its own way and finding its own formula. Um, so Voyager's the one that feels the most like, we've got a formula, let's just ride it. Uh, so that's one of the reasons i feel even even the modern stuff is like clearly trying to find new ways to do star trek uh you know picard's a sequel series with all like trying to you know find its way in the new the new uh, what where star trek went from the berman era lord is animated obviously um uh and discovery of course keeps reinventing itself constantly possibly as much as tw- as five times by now um depending on h- who you want to listen to uh, which I do appreciate about discovery but i do agree with your point about um intelligent in general too I, I the the constant the, the heavy serialization of, of uh, TV can be very good I do, there are elements there are ways in which I like it, but we've gotten to a point where it's literally just, here's chapter one here's chapter two, here's chapter three, and it's just one long movie and one long story, and I do miss the uh, discrete episodes of TV shows where you could literally just go, okay this week something crazy happens, I like when there's a link and that there's some logical progression of episodes that we didn't just go, well Okay, we flow away that week, and next week we're at a new planet, Pi. Like, I agree. The char- it, it, it gets frustrating when you watch old shows as as recently as, like, the mid-90s, and, and Star Trek was guilty of this as well, where it'd be like, there's no development of the characters. There's no development of the situation. The plot does not configure itself. And when it does, it's often in kind of a random... Again, this is something that Voyager was very guilty of. Uh, Deep Space Nine actually is one of the best TV shows out there, I think, for... Blending a good story every week, but having it link into a larger narrative that keeps building on itself. And it is building on itself. It's not like they planned out this long form uh, story to span over seven seasons or whatever. It's... Um, okay, let's do this. Oh, Ducat's going to show up. What's he going to be like now? Oh, he's got like a guitar and a, a ponytail, and he's going through some stuff this time. <laughs> you know, like that. Like I, this is. <laughs> I do find it entertaining that the Ducat storylines on next on uh, Deep Space Nine um, are pretty clearly like. Oh, what can we have that wacky Ducat do this time? They didn't. They didn't plan it out. They just kept kind of reinventing his character or reinventing what had happened to him, essentially. Um, and it just, it evolved in way. And that a lot of *D. space nine was that way. They just kept adding a new thing and it would be complete without maybe a vague idea of what they were going to do next, but it wasn't like, Oh, and then in 12 episodes time, this is going to happen. It was just like, Oh, this is a story we're telling this time. And maybe that'll lead to something interesting in the future. I think that's a really good way to tell television stories. And I, I, uh, I miss that a lot. I think that's the best way to to blend serialization with um, with good standalone stories that still allow you opportunities to do weird experimental stuff. So who knows? Maybe next season, this discovery sort of finally found its feet after thrashing around a bit for two seasons. So maybe, maybe, maybe you'll have the confidence in the next season to do something like that. Uh, could be do- doing something interesting. Um, that actually. Uh, Maybe a slightly awkward segue, but it does uh, make me. I I did want to bring up the fact that um, uh, Star Trek is not the first science fiction show, of course, but uh, it's certainly the baseline, the bedrock for science fiction. And we have all these other science fiction shows, all these other genre shows, one way or another, they are all walking in the footsteps of Star Trek, I think. I think uh, it's almost unavoidable. It's like what people say about, you know, uh, the ancient. Greeks like you, you know you can you can try to push back against them you can try to recontextualize them or or do something different than what they did but you kind of have to acknowledge they existed <laughs> like because they did they accomplished so much and Star Trek's the same way like it, you you can do something completely different from Star Trek but you you're kind of stuck with Star Trek as the baseline model for a science fiction television show uh, Doctor Who's the one thing that can kind of avoid that because it was in another it, it was before Star Trek, and it's in another uh, part of uh, part of the world. But otherwise, I think Star Trek, if you're doing a sci-fi t- TV show, you're going to be acknowledging Star Trek in some way or another.
1: Look, I think that's absolutely right. And even the further away your show gets from Star Trek, the more it looks like you are just trying to get away from Star Trek. You're not defined by where you're yeah. headed. You're defined by where you're trying to go away from. Um, right. Sometimes we see it explicitly, like Stargate SG-1, I think an important part of its branding was being a slightly more irreverent, um, less self-serious version of Star Trek taking some of its basic conceits and tweaking them for a contemporary audience and a set of contemporary characters. Certainly, as Uh is notorious, Battlestar Galactica, as revamped by Ronald D. Moore, is strongly informed by both his experiences on Deep Space Nine and by his experiences on Voyager. So there's explicit examples of shows owing an enormous debt to Star Trek. But it's also, as you've noted, the fact that these shows take part within a television landscape in which Star Trek has been an important feature. Deep Space Nine's experiments in serialisation haven't just been an influence for other science fiction shows. It's an example of a primetime, not enormously popular, but well-established dramatic TV series in the 1990s experimenting with serialisation discovering what worked and what didn't, and in doing so, playing a role, large or small, in what television looks like these days. Contemporary Doctor Who can trace its roots back further than Star Trek, but to the extent that contemporary Doctor Who is influenced by the television landscape as a whole, even it can't stand aside from the effect that Star Trek has had on how we tell television stories. Certainly, um, and so... But that obviously forces us to reckon not just with what Star Trek's influence has been, but to return to the questions of where Star Trek has gotten its influences and how that's affected the content of the show. In the last episode, I noted that Star Trek owes a great debt both to westerns and tales of discovery, and in doing so has incorporated, consciously or unconsciously, a lot of the tropes of those. But something which I am super desperate to explore is your fascinating idea that Star Trek at its heart is often fundamentally a legal drama. It's concerned <laughs> with argument, it's concerned with disputation, it's concerned with the laws that govern us in our relationship with one another. Sometimes that's explicit, that the show that Gene Roddenberry had worked on before Star Trek, The Rifleman, was a legal drama about the Judge Advocate General's Corps. And sometimes it's simply inherent to the way that Star Trek works. Adam... Tell us more about this idea of Star Trek as a legal drama, because I am desperate to weigh in.
0: Okay, well, I mean, you basically said it. I mean, so much of Star Trek is uh, there's a there's a problem, uh, the Enterprise shows up at this planet, or discover either they've come specifically to solve the problem, or they discover there's a problem that uh, gets in the way of whatever they've come for, uh, and they um, and y- it's usually a problem that involves the society itself being problematic in some way and the enterprise basically whether literally or just by virtue of being the outsiders and of being you know authority figures they'll come in and start weighing in and and telling people you know hey you know you're the society is bad because the the people with the white on the one side and the black on the other side of their face are are persecuting the other ones or you know oh these the, you know you, you you're you you're mistreating your veterans you've stuck them way on a moon and it's not right um and or, or or even something like um the defector uh which has a romulan coming to uh you know to to flee uh romulus to you know seemingly betray his people and and join with the enterprise but you know they don't believe him so they have to kind of litigate it um so much of it becomes about having this long discussion uh, with the Enterprise, whether it's Kirk or Picard or Janeway or whoever, acting as essentially the judge uh, and and trying to find a solution to their problems. And often, you know, the, the solution is to make a big speech. Uh, that's so often <laughs> the way things get resolved on Star Trek. Uh, Kirk or someone makes a huge speech, sometimes to the point of literally... Um, like he destroys a computer (laughs) by arguing logic at it. As we all know, that's the classic star Trek move. That's another sense of which like words on star Trek have so much power. They can, they can really, they, they'll, they'll, blow apart this the problems of your society because you argued so strongly and you made you you landed such a blow for logic and rhetoric uh that it that it literally destroys the thing that was keeping your society in shackles uh at that in that sense it, it it's you know it is a legal drama i think that i think that's 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 the the subtextual uh uh theme of of so much star trek there's
1: so much i want to say um I'll start before I forget with just one more point on Star Trek's influence from other genres, which I completely forgot before. So in Season 1 of the rebooted Doctor Who, in The Empty Child, Rose, the Doctor's companion, repeatedly and unfavourably compares the Doctor to Star Trek heroes. Why can't you just show up and do a scan for life? Why can't you be more like Spock? Uh, and the Doctor bridles against this comparison, he's doing what he does in the way that he does. Now, I think this is interesting because even when Doctor Who is pointing out the ways in which it's not like Star Trek, that is in itself bouncing off against and defining itself in opposition to the other big franchise in the television landscape. The more you try not to be like Star Trek, the more you're basically defined by what Star Trek isn't. Now, as to Star Trek as legal drama, I think that actually touches upon one of the key themes emerging from our previous episode. More than, deeper than anything else in Star Trek's ideological basis is that it believes in reason and logic. It believes that disputes, problems, antagonisms, crises are ultimately susceptible to reasoned solutions based upon mutual common interest it believes ultimately in the power of persuasion and logic to both drive people to embrace common solutions and to and, and as a basis for reconciliation and that obviously sounds pretty basic but it's an enormously But it's not simply a question of sort of accepting homilies and it's not just a question of accepting what everyone believes. It is a vision in its own right. It does lead Star Trek to reject the inherent power of... um, It does lead Star Trek to reject irrational prejudices. It does lead Star Trek to reject the idea that there are some problems which are fundamentally unsolvable, or some gulfs which are fundamentally unbridgeable. Star Trek is based in the idea that there is such a thing as rational answers to problems which are at their root ultimately subject to the rules of reason and logic. And that's what's so legal, if you like, about Star Trek, because at its heart, the law in Western societies and in the common law tradition that has been the basis for most Star Trek storytelling, is based upon the idea of universal laws to which we subscribe for universal protection in return. It is based upon the idea that one can identify what the law is, not as a concept which is subjective or individual to each of us, but which is susceptible to being logically determined and then to a logical, universal, and fair application to different individuals. So Star Trek.
0: It's 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 essentially. Sorry, I couldn't help resist it. So what Kirk does when he argue, what he blows a computer is he destroys it with facts and logic. Yes,
1: absolutely. It's it's, and I realise that we're adopting some of the language of the contemporary, you know, the contemporary alt right in doing so, and we want and I want to push back against that because I I I realise that the language is the same, but what sets Star Trek apart from that tradition? is that whereas the contemporary alt-right has used the language of facts and logic to suggest effectively, to suggest a monopoly on a particular tradition of truth, or to suggest, or to elevate some voices over others, Star Trek has ultimately been based upon the idea that reasoned logical debate is the way in which everyone gets to have their voice heard, and to reach a solution which is ultimately acceptable to everyone. That if everyone has the opportunity to express their voice in a forum which is open and in a forum which is objective and fair, then we can reach a solution which is acceptable to all voices. Whereas the contemporary elevation of facts and logic in alt-right discourse is ultimately a way of suggesting some perspectives are factual and logical and others are not, and as a mechanism of exclusion. At its best, the legal tradition in Star Trek is based upon that idea of a public forum and of ultimately and of debate, discussion, and ultimate consensus being the route forward, rather than just the victory of one perspective over the other. So so that's that is Star Trek's founding credo. That is what is Star Trek more than anything else in my view. It is that acceptance that, that embrace of debate discussion and of the idea of reasoned agreement following discussion, not simply discussion as a tool with which to hammer one's opponents, with which to, um, for the ultimate triumph of the person with the loudest voice. As we would see in the alt-right use of the term, but in the idea that it's reason, logic and discussion that is ultimately the means towards participation and towards consensus. Yeah.
0: So I I think uh, we'll probably uh, cl- head towards closing it out here, but there was one other thing I wanted to say, and we did, we did mention about uh, Star Trek's influence on other science fiction TV shows. And um, we also mentioned Star Wars, and I think that's uh, something particularly relevant right now because of uh, the existence of The Mandalorian, uh, which just uh, happened. And this is interesting because I would argue the Star Wars mode of science fiction storytelling is the biggest uh, existing mode uh, that, in, again, in science fiction, in film and TV, that differentiates, that, that is different from uh, what star trek does star trek is again it's a show where you go to a new planet every week and you go and you visit it and you uh you you solve the problems and then you fly away it's about the future it's about uh you know trying to make things better trying to reconcile like you said uh star wars is a different mode it's it it, it it's about characters who exist in an old universe there are you know, uh, they're surrounded by the weight of history, as it were, and the weight of other cultures. Uh, they're all around them. You're, you go into a bar and there's 500 aliens in there and they all have their own language. And, and uh, and you know, everyone knows this one planet makes a certain type of booze. And, you know, if you go to this other planet, you're going to be on a, up, you know, in the jungle and, and you know, there are going to be teddy bears trying to eat you or whatever. So it, it's all like a very established... Universe. Even though there are corners of it that are remote, um, these places are mostly. It, it's established as kind of a fantasy universe, except in outer space. Everyone knows. Oh yeah, I know what a Wookie is. That's you know, they're they're down the street. We're not going to the Wookiee planet. We're trying to figure out what problems the Wookiees have necessarily. Um, it's it's much more about the political control over that larger superstructure that is the galaxy um which is again something that we've started to see started to show up on star trek more and more after star wars came out uh but it was never you know the larger galactic politics did end up playing roles um but again that whereas whereas star trek usually took the cold war or at the very least the pax americana as its basis, uh, Star Wars took it from the viewpoint of a a larger oppressive system which we're fighting back up against, or which is in decline in the prequels whatever. Um, So that makes it interesting to me that there's now a Star Wars I mean, uh, there were animated shows, but there's now a mainstream uh, Star Wars television show Uh, and it's, it's actually one of the rare science fiction TV shows I would say doesn't owe too much to Star Trek it's a show that exists in the Star Wars mold that we've seen, where, again, there's this pre-existing cultures. Even then, yes, it does have a guy going from place to place. He's doing bounty hunter stuff. He's not doing uh, exploration or trying to help people with their problems. And when he does try to help with people with their problems, it's essentially a space-western in a way that yes star trek is sometimes a space western but in a diff- it's a different kind of space western even then star trek is a tv space western star wars is a movie space western um so it, it's and again there's a difference because tv westerns played themselves out differently than than movie westerns generally did um it's much more focused on the action adventure elements uh and i find that very interesting because if 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 the mandalorian was a more detailed show with lots of discussion and back and forth and and rhetoric it would start to feel more like star trek if it dealt with like moral conundrums and things which it doesn't really um you know that would be that would be moving into star trek's domain which would be really interesting because star trek's kind of peaked into star wars domain but i don't think star wars has ever peaked into star trek's domain um so that's that's interesting to me that the two are still so discreet in that way
1: yeah i think that's really interesting in Canada, i haven't seen the mandalorian yet Um, I know a fair amount about it because I exist in online geek spaces, but I'm going to be cautious in making comments about it. I think you're absolutely right to point out, though, that to the extent that Star Wars draws influences from things like Westerns, and you can see that influence even in the original Star Wars, it's led to a franchise that has parallels with Star Trek only because they draw upon similar sources and are drawn from a similar milieu, rather than necessarily Star Trek influencing Star Wars. They're looking to similar fictional, fictional templates for inspiration, but I don't. It's very difficult to point to examples of a Star Wars story or a Star Wars concept that you can point to as being explicitly drawn from Star Trek. And I think, I think the contrast is really interesting and in illuminating both shows. So many Star Wars stories are built around this conflict between the light and the dark sides of the Force. There's often gestures towards the idea of finding balance or finding a new way forward, most notably recently in The Last Jedi. But it is the idea that there is this binary underlying the universe, this tension between the light and the dark, this struggle that never ends, save ultimately, with... Um, conflict and division and i think that is ultimately anathema to star trek the idea of an unbridgeable gulf between light and dark the idea of an inexplicable supernatural force not ultimately susceptible to logical or reasoned analysis or explanation that is intrinsic to the universe and which is divided into halves which are good and evil Star Trek, I think, rejects the idea of irreconcilable conflict. I think Star Trek rejects the idea of forces which are not susceptible to logical reasoned explanation. I think Star Trek rejects the idea that conflict is ultimately an organising force of how the universe is set up as I've said, it believes in logic and reason not because it believes that logic and reason ought to triumph in and of themselves, but because they provide a means of resolving conflict. They provide a means of bringing people together rather than having one faction triumph over the other. To the extent that Star Wars is based upon the idea that the light will triumph or is invested in the triumph of the light over the dark, that speaks to a bleaker universe of conflict and division that Star Trek to its credit, has at its best rejected. And I think that's my point on which to wrap up.
0: Yeah, I, I think... Yeah, it's it's good. Yeah, I think, I think you know, not to... Of course we're biased towards Star Trek, and <laughs> not to drastically over-sympathize, but I, I do think Star Wars uh, looks backwards and Star Trek looks ahead, basically. Even though Star Wars is futuristic sci-fi, uh, as I've discussed in my other podcast, there is definitely an element of uh, r- sort of reactionary in the sense of being... Uh, stapled to the past uh that runs throughout star uh throughout science fiction sometimes where you just transplant old you know backwards looking ideas into outer space uh and that is what star wars tends to do now of course this is not to say that there isn't a lot of that people don't occasionally try to do something interesting with star wars you do sometimes get that i do think star wars is at this point, you know, it sort of flubbed the possibility of doing something new. <laughs> I think it was it was it was getting to the point where it might have done something and it now it's just like no, let's keep the brand going. Uh so here's more of that stuff that you already like from Star Wars. And and I think you're not going to see a lot of radical experimental uh, experimentation on Star Wars' part. Whereas you might still potentially see it from Star Trek. I think uh if if Star Trek hasn't been as experimental and and interesting and bold as it's been in the past, uh it it nevertheless contains the seeds of being that way. Um and and it's sort of been there, been in that general vicinity in the in in the last little while. So we'll see where, where that happens. But I I do think um uh it, it is it is going to be interesting just because we're going to have so many Star Trek shows, which is probably something we're gonna talk about in the next episode, uh that they're going to almost out of the similar desperation that I talked out of talked about earlier, they're going to have to play around with what they can do with television and what they can do with the medium they've been assigned, which is streaming, which is now a different, uh, in a sense, a different medium than, than the old television that gave birth to Star Trek. Uh, but it'll be very interesting to see if they try to play around with the medium a bit more and, and try to do something that, um, that brings it to a new place other than just giving us more Star Trek. But here's hoping they do. Um. So, uh, okay. So, uh, we're that's it for this evening. Uh, I just want to remind everyone again that uh, I uh, have another uh, podcast, What Mad Universe at neversleepsnetwork.com dot com slash What Dash Mad Dash Universe. Uh, sorry, NeverSleepsNetwork slash series slash What Dash Mad Dash Universe. Um, and uh, you can see some of my other thoughts on science fiction in general if you listen to that. Um, I have a Patreon and you can link to the, uh, podcast via, um, uh, iTunes and Stitcher and all the other podcatchers, Spotify and so, so forth. Um, so, uh, I think we're going to leave it there for the evening and I hope you'll swing by to my other stuff and otherwise we'll see you
1: around. Live long and prosper.
0: And we'll see you on the other side.